Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, your co-hosts. And today we have a special guest with us, James Audison. So James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So Bruce, I also want to say good morning to you and have you share a little bit of your thoughts and then I'll bring us into the topic and the matter that we're discussing today. Yeah. First of all, I'd like to thank everybody for their continued support and listening to the podcast. The the uh, feedback that we're getting is exactly what Rachel and I envisioned in 2017 when we started the podcast. We we wanted to do a show that was, you know, a genuine show that that talked about all viewpoints of a person's personal economy and how to, how it fit into the world economy. And then we wanted to educate you to a point where you became your your best financial advisor. Because um, and as Dr. Otteson, um, through my research, has has uh, has talked about, is that it's impossible to have the the all knowing person, the one person that can figure things out for everybody, because they do not know your preferences and your emotional connection to money. And that's what we're trying to teach here: is that you know to to actually have a economic system where you can just plug in variables and come out with the right answer uh, just cannot exist because the variables include emotional aspects of a person and not not to mention the uh, constant change in economy. And if I can, I'm just going to take another 30 seconds to talk about one of the things in, in uh, financial advising that that I am in is we call safe rates of return. And safe rates of return used to be uh, espoused at four percent until the bond market took took a, a fall, and then they dropped it all the way down to two point six percent for a safe rate of return. And now it's actually come back up to closer to three point six or three point eight percent. And it, and I find it very interesting that how can you say at any time in a economic in your economic time period that it's a safe rate of return if you're able to change the variable of what is safe. And so that allows you then to be educated to understand what words are even meaning. Um, and so to have a philosopher uh, on that focuses on economics, I think people should stay uh, tuned to the very end of this episode because they're going to get uh, information about life and about economic situations. So I'm really excited to share Dr. Otteson's uh, viewpoints on this. Excellent. Well, let's just give a, a brief overlook at what we're talking about today, and then I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into your bio, and then we're going to open up the conversation. So James Otteson is the John T. Ryan Professor of Business Ethics at the University of Notre Dame, and he's the author of Seven Deadly Economic Sins, Obstacles to Prosperity and Happiness Every Citizen Should Know. So you've probably heard of the seven deadly sins, which are pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. but he says that each of those is a natural human weakness that impedes happiness. But in addition to those vices, however, there are economic sins as well. It's interesting that you say economic sins. We're not just saying <laughs> things we should avoid. They're sins. They're they're uh, uh, really bad. 
Um, and they too wreak havoc on our lives and in society. They can seem intuitively compelling, yet lead to waste, loss, and foregone prosperity. So in his thoughtful and compelling book, which um, James Audison then tells the story of these seven central economic fallacies, he explains why they're fallacies and why believing in them leads to mistakes and loss and how exercising them from our thinking can help us avoid costly errors and enable us to live in peace and prosperity. There's so much packed into that we're going to um, <laughs> yes, unravel throughout this conversation today. That's actually from the back of your book. So today on this podcast, we're going to discuss what economists what economists agree about. Now, many have disagreeing and varying opinions, but what they all do agree on, why wealth creation is positive sum, not zero sum, and how market economies have enabled more prosperity than any other system of economics. And also why business can be moral and honorable. A lot of themes that you've probably heard on this show before that we're going to unpack from a different perspective. So if you want a conversation about economics and philosophy and how nations prosper, this is the conversation you want to listen in today. So I'm going to give a, a snapshot of your bio, and then we're going to hear more from you about your background and then and then dive into what the book is all about. So great, great. Um, so you earned your bachelor's degree, uh, bachelor's Bachelor of Arts degree from the Program of Liberal Studies at the University of Notre Dame in 1990. And then James Audison's sophomore year was spent abroad studying at the Universität Innsbruck in Innsbruck, Austria. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. You did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. And then after completing his undergraduate degree, he attended the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. He earned an MA in philosophy in 1992 and joined the philosophy department at the University of Chicago, receiving a PhD in 1997. Then he graduated from Chicago, took a position in the philosophy department at the University of Alabama, and then he began as an assistant professor, received tenure, and rose to become the department chair. In 2007, he accepted a position as joint professor of philosophy and economics and director of the honors program at Yeshiva University in New York City, New York. In 2013, he moved to Wake Forest University, and in 2020, he's returned to his alma mater and joined the faculty at the University of Notre Dame. So at Notre Dame, we mentioned that he's the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business, et Business Ethics, the Rex and Alice A. Martin Faculty Director, and the Notre Dame Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership and Faculty Director of the Business Honors Program. So... I'm going to leave it there, except I do want to share from the end here that you lecture widely on Adam Smith, classical liberalism, political economy, business ethics, and related issues, including the Fund for American Studies, the Adam Smith Society, the Acton Institute, the Fraser Institute, and the Tikva Fund. So just a fascinating um, swath through university and a lot of philosophy that led you into economics. So can we hear from you and your perspective about um, that background that led you to to deciding that economics was something fascinating to you? Uh, I'm happy to. That was quite a thorough introduction so <laughs> and review. So thank you very much, Rachel. Uh, you're right. My, my, uh, my own academic journey has been uh, uh, somewhat unusual. Um, and, you know, for a philosophy PhD to be teaching in a business school, that's a very unusual thing. Um, but really, I wish I could say that it was uh, because of a grand design or a grand plan, but it was really a series of accidents. Um, I was a, in a liberal studies major. So the program of liberal studies at the uh, University of Notre Dame is sometimes called its great books program. That's its great books major. 
Um, I had gone into college thinking I should be, I was a first, uh, the first person in my family to graduate from college. So I didn't know much about what college was about. Um, and I thought that if you went to college, I mean, this was back in the day, as you're, um, as you noted, but I thought if you went to college, you should either become a medical doctor or a lawyer. I thought those were the two things you became. Um, and so I was going to be a medical doctor. And I just happened to take a course that I was required to take um, that was taught by a classics professor. And we read things like Homer's Iliad, which I had never heard of and didn't know anything about, never read it. And I was completely transfixed by that book. I absolutely loved it. Uh, but anyway, it led me into the Great Books Program at Notre Dame. Um, when I was in graduate school, in particular at the University of Chicago, uh, one of my philosophical heroes was David Hume. Um, and I uh, thought, well, I want to write a, uh, my dissertation on something like the moral theory, David Hume's moral theory. Um, and he was a, the great Scottish, 18th century Scottish philosopher, um, one of the leading lights of what we now call the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, and uh, But there were so many people writing on Hume at the time that I was sort of casting about to, you know, trying to find some new angle, something that I could write on. And I discovered, um, to my surprise, that he had been friends, personal friends, with somebody named Adam Smith. Mm. Uh, um, and so they were both Scotsmen. They were both leaders of uh, the Scottish Enlightenment in the 18th century. But uh, I had heard of Adam Smith. And even as an undergraduate, I had read a little bit from his, uh, his famous book, uh, The Wealth of Nations. And I didn't really remember much, to be honest. I remember the phrase invisible hand. I didn't really re remember much else. Uh, but I thought I would look into Smith a little bit more because I thought, you know, any friend of Hume's is a friend of mine. Um, and I discovered that Smith wrote this other book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, um, which I had never heard of. That was actually his first book, came out in 1759. Um, so I decided on a lark to read that. Um, and I read it and I was and I thought, wow, this book is amazing. I was I was um, completely blown away with the uh, the insights and the depth of analysis of that book. And so. I rushed to the library. You know, this is a time when people used to go to libraries and read books. I, <laughs> I, I rushed to the library to see what other philosophers had said about Adam Smith, and it um, turned out almost nothing. Um, philosophers hadn't really written anything about Adam Smith. Um, the only people who, had, who were writing about Adam Smith were economists uh, who were writing about the wealth of nations. Um, but, um, you know, with all due respect to uh, economists, uh, many of whom are my friends, you know, they're not always the best scholars. Um, and so a lot of what they wrote about Adam Smith wasn't really very good, to be honest. They were sort of using or appropriating him for their own purposes. Um, so I decided to write my dissertation on Adam Smith's moral theory, and that's what I ended up doing. Um, and, but um, that kind of launched, you know, this was a couple of accidents that led me to that. And that just got me interested in um, you know, once I was studying the, um, the moral theory of Smith, that got me interested in the political economy or what we now would recognize or call economics that uh, Smith himself worked on, but that others uh, uh, worked on in the 18th century, which got me a little interested in the history of economic thought. So I began to study that through the 19th century into the 20th century. Um, and um, I started teaching courses in the history of economic thought. And eventually I was asked, and this brings us a little bit closer to uh, th this book. I was asked to teach a business ethics course, which I had never taught before. Um, and I did a little bit of looking around at, uh, you know, what other people taught in business ethics courses. And I thought, um, you know, discovered a couple of things. One of them is that there was no clear consensus. It didn't seem to me anyway, no clear consensus about what a business ethics course should actually be or what it should accomplish or what it should do. All kinds of different methodologies, all kinds of different readings. Some of them were just a, just sort of a series of, um, of a, a murderer's row of bad actors. You know, you would just look at a lot of bad things that happened in business. You know, we'd look at Enron and say, oh, weren't those guys terrible? Yeah, they were terrible. 
Then we look at Bernie Madoff. Wasn't he terrible? Oh yeah, yeah, he was terrible. And you, you know, you go to a series of them. Maybe you know, next semester we'll uh, talk about Sam Bankman-Fried or something, and you know, he'll, and say, oh, wasn't he terrible? Yeah, that was terrible. Um, but um, I thought it might be more interesting and maybe more productive um, if instead of just looking at all the ways that business could go wrong, instead turning it around a little bit and asking, well, is there some kind of moral purpose that a life in business could actually serve? Um, if you wanted to be a virtuous person, I mean, you wanted to integrate virtue into all aspects of your life, including your professional life, um, what would that look like? Could you be a fully virtuous person and at the same time fully engaged in business in a market economy? Um, and that really has led to a lot of the stuff that I've been teaching and writing about, um, including this book, Seven Deadly Economic Sins. So that's a little bit of my journey, maybe a little bit more than you wanted to know, but that gives you an idea of how I ended up where I am now. That's fascinating and definitely not more than we wanted to know. I love okay. that. I love the wandering path that looks very random, maybe from the beginning, but looking backwards, it always makes sense, right? I think uh, that's right. Right. Who said that? Steve Jobs. Um, the dots all connect looking backwards. And it's right. so fascinating mm -hmm. that you followed this path and that philosophy led you into economics because I think a very thoughtful study of economics is necessary. And then you, you're you asking these questions about, can we be moral in business? I love that you were challenging the um, status quo, which almost didn't even seem to exist in um, business economics of just studying negative problems and instead saying, how can we make this right? And so why don't you just give us a quick um, overview of what your book is about and kind of why you wrote this book and who it's for? Sure. So it's it's really written for people, so for um, an intelligent, educated audience um, who are not economists. So um, you know, for people who are interested maybe in economic matters or interested to know how economic the principles of economic reasoning might apply to decisions they might make either in their personal lives or when they're evaluating, say, candidates for office or proposed policies. Um, but um, themselves have not, they didn't major in economics, they haven't studied uh, the economics literature. So that's really the audience for the book. That's, you know, that, and that's a big audience. Um, you know, almost everybody has opinions about economic matters. And that's um, one of the curious things about, maybe it's, you know, it's like politics. We all have our um, opinions about politics, but we also, many of us have very strong opinions about economic matters, even though curiously, many of us have not actually studied economics. So you know, if you ask a random person, you know, do you have an opinion about whether the minimum wage should be uh, raised, for example? Well, everybody had almost everybody has an opinion, sometimes a very strongly held opinion, but almost never have they reviewed the actual academic literature that has studied. Um, and there is a huge literature about things like price ceilings and mandatory price ceilings and price floors. Um, or, you know, should we have uh, tariffs on Chinese goods? People have opinions about these things. Uh, haven't really studied it. So, you know, that's a, I found that to be curious. Um, and, you know, to be fair to people who don't study economics or who aren't interested in, you know, reading economics journals, um, you know, if you, if you were to open up a contemporary academic journal, economics academic journal, um, you know, basically anywhere, you dip into it anywhere, what are you going to see? You're going to see a lot of equations um, that require a lot of technical knowledge, even to make sense of, let alone to try to you know, apply to your life. So it's very foreboding. I mean, it's very hard to get even get into that. 
And then, you know, as you noted at the outset, Rachel, um, it's also the case that economists disagree about a lot of things. They get a lot of things wrong. They disagree about a lot of things. So I think, you know, even Nobel laureates are on different sides of of economics issues. So um, I think people can be forgiven for, you know, maybe saying, well, you know, why should we pay attention to those guys? They don't really know what they're talking about. Um, And so this book, uh, Seven Deadly Economic Sins, was written for people who do have an interest in um, in understanding how economics might help inform decisions, um, either in their personal lives or um, in, in the public square. Um, but also because I think there are, although there are many things that economists disagree about, there are some fundamental principles that just about every economist agrees on. Um, and these are fairly basic. And um, when you lay them out, I think, I hope anyway, have a look at the book. Um, you can tell me whether you think I'm a writer or not. But um, they can be laid out in a fairly intuitive way, um, but um, in some cases, they, they have counterintuitive implications. So you understand some of the principles, but then when you start to apply them, you realize, oh, um, they, the, the, some of the decisions I'm making or some of the um, considerations I'm bringing to bear when I'm making these decisions aren't really the right kinds, and I'm thinking about them not in quite the right way. So I think it's possible that at least some of the basic principles of economic reasoning can actually help us make better decisions in our own personal lives. And we're thinking about how to allocate our own personal scarce resources, limited resources, um, but also when we're evaluating policy at the, the state or the federal level. Um, the, these basic principles, I think, can actually, they don't tell us always exactly what to do, but what they can do, I think, is clarify the implications of things. If we're going to do this, Here's what we can expect. If we're going to do this, here's what we can expect. And you know, then you do still need, and this goes back to your earlier point about you know, sort of philosophy and economics, you do still need to have moral judgment, philosophical judgment. You know, what trade-offs are worth making? Um, what are the kind, you know, sometimes uh, doing the right thing requires some actual sacrifice. Um, sometimes it doesn't. So um, if we know what sacrifices or what costs might be involved in various decisions, well, that puts us in a much better position to make a good and informed decision. What's fascinating is that if you are going to say seven deadly economic sins, well, then there has to be a truth. There has to be a truth that's somehow fundamental or underlying what is factual. And I like how you brought up the idea that a lot of people have opinions and we can talk about our opinions on minimum wage or I mean, we can talk about opinions on all of the decisions that politicians are making. But I think there's something really valuable about going back to the principle. You mentioned that word as well, principle, the principle of what's actually happening. And you need to have a level of um, rational thought about that, but also you have to be honest, I I guess, um, intellectually honest in order to truly arrive at a conclusion that works. And so you need to know what is truth in the world of economics, what is truth in the world of philosophy. And so that's the only way that you can label something a sin or a fallacy is if there is a a counter or an opposite to that, which is a truth. And so I like that you are bringing out this idea that there's way more than opinion. It's not just opinion about should we raise or lower interest rates? Should we raise or lower minimum wage? Should the government give more money to this or less money to that? Or should we spend more or less on certain wars? And I think we can often make financial decisions in our own life, but also um, judgments of political dealings in the way of just our opinion, rather than coming back to the source. And I like that you're bringing it all the way back to the source. Ah, thank you. Yeah. You, it sounds like you have a question that you're going to ask now. <laughs> I am, but also Bruce- Are you going to challenge me? <laughs> uh, 
Bruce, did you have somewhere you wanted to go from there? Well, I think I, I'd like to start out <clears throat> because I like the fact that wealth is a zero-sum game. It's kind of like the first thing that mentioned in the book. Yeah. And, and I like what you talked about is that where does that fallacy come from, you know, where, where people worry about that? And growing up in, a, in, a, in the uh, 60s and 70s, when we were, especially in the 70s, when inflation was rampant and the economy was not very good, and then growing up in a lower economic um, class, a lot of those things I saw personally that just kind of oozed in not only to my family, but my community. Um, and I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. My father was, who I love dearly and still alive. But he was like, you don't talk about money ever. You know, you don't talk about how much anything costs, how much anybody makes. And that's what really fascinated me. It's like, why? And I think now looking back and studying this, because he thought if, if he brought a car home that was really nice, he was getting judged by somebody else saying, well, the only reason you were able to afford that car was that because you took advantage of somebody else. Yep. Yep. And um, and and actually, his his uh, main source of income was a Shell full service station, where he would actually give away services to people all the time. And everybody, and he is he's the greatest person in the world. Everybody in the, in the town thought he was the greatest person in the world. But it ultimately caused him to lose his business because he could not keep it open because he wasn't turning a profit. And so this is the greatest example of where a person is worried about, you know, taking advantage of somebody else, but they're providing a great service and they're not getting compensated for the service. So if you could comment a little bit about the the wealth as a zero sum game, because this is something we talked with previous podcast guests very extensively. And I think it's, you probably put it number one as a re for, for a reason. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and for just, you're exactly right. And just for the reasons you suggest, I mean, you know, the, one one thing that uh, your your story about your father makes me think of is that um, one of the things people say about business is that, um, especially people who aren't in business but who are criticizing business, um, they say that, oh, well, you know, if you're going to succeed in business, um, the way you succeed in business is by being sort of ruthlessly selfish. You know, that um, you're out for number one, and only, that means you, and that's all you do. Uh, but for anybody who's actually been in business, actually tried to conduct, you know, run a business, meet a payroll, um, you know, uh, deep in your bones that if the only person you're thinking about is yourself, you're going to go out of business in a New York minute. Um, you have to be thinking about constantly thinking about everybody else, your employees, your customers, your community, your clients, potential vendors, vendors. I mean, you're yeah. thinking about everything, you know, what's giving you gray hair at night and, and keeping you up at night is thinking about everybody else. Um, you're, you all often come way down at the bottom, even less. Um, but you're right. I think that uh, that does connect in an interesting way. I, you know, it's a great story. And it's a, a story that, meant that there are many stories like that that we never hear about. Um, you know, the stories about business that we hear and read about are about the big, large scale bad actors. We don't hear about the millions of people who are engaging in mutually voluntary, mutually beneficial transactions um, that, that go on across the country and around the world all the time. We never hear about them. Um, but that idea about wealth being a zero sum, I, I, you know, that is a very it is number one. And that's the first chapter in my book. And for a reason, that's a very pervasive view. 
Um, and I think many people sort of intuitively think that if any person succeeds, you know, you succeed, you start a business, you're successful in your business, you become a billionaire. Um, people often think, well, the only way you could possibly have done that is by doing something bad to somebody else. They might not know exactly what you did wrong, but they're pretty sure you must have done something wrong. Um, and so, and, 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 and I think part of the explanation for that is that people tend to think, you know, maybe maybe it's a natural thing. And there are some um, some researchers who think there's actually an evolutionary explanation for this. I'm not sure about that. But in any case, it does seem very intuitive, very natural to view the world in zero sum terms. Um, meaning, you know, if you think about you know, um, our resources, all the resources we have are limited. Um, in fact, you know, the entire discipline of economics doesn't get off the ground unless you recognize and assume that fact that. However much anybody has, we always want more. Our desires always outstrip the um, the resources we have to meet them. And so that's not just you know natural resources. It could um, it can include natural resources. It can include our money or our own wealth. It can include things like our time. You know, our time is absolutely limited. Um, and so um, if you think about our time, um, any time you know any year, month, week, day, hour you spend doing one thing. That is a period of time that is gone forever in the history of the universe. You do not ever get it back. It is gone. So if you spend it in, in one direction, that means it cannot be spent in any of the indefinitely many other things, ways that you might have spent it. Um, and that's true also for our other resources. Any dollar you spend in one place is a dollar that cannot have also go to some other place. And so what that suggests to people, that is, I mean, that fact alone has a lot of interesting implications. Um, but I think what a lot of people think about, uh, assume because of that, is that the resources we have in the world, like our time, uh, if you think about time, that, that's relatively fixed. There was a time when you came into the world, and there is a time, I'm sorry to say, when you will go out of the world. Um, and however much time there is between those two points, you can't manufacture any more of it. That's all there is. Um, and I think a lot of people think the same thing about wealth and prosperity, that there is a fixed amount of wealth or a fixed amount of prosperity and that all we're really doing is sort of moving it around. Um, and if you get a lot of it, that means that somebody else must have gotten a lot less. So I think a lot of people view the, the, the activity of wealth creation as, you know, like a baseball game. You know, if the Red Sox and the Yankees are playing, one of them's going to win and the other one has to lose. You, you can't both win. Um, and so I think they think um, they transfer that to what goes on in wealth. Um, what, what's interesting um, is, and really uh, to me, a spectacular discovery almost that we made, that human beings made relatively recently in our history, is that it's possible for both sides to win. Um, rather, you know, if you think about human history, say before around 1800, you know, longer ago in our past, you know, think about the, the Egyptian pharaohs and the pyramids that they built. Well, it took a lot of capital to build those pyramids. You know, where did they get all of that capital? Well, conquest, slavery, theft. Okay. So they weren't really creating new prosperity. What were they doing? They were extracting it from other places and concentrating it right there in Egypt. Um, and if you think about other, um, other, you know, great civilizations, think about the Roman empire with the Colosseum and the aqueducts and the roads and the military that also requires a lot of capital. Where did they get it? Same way. Conquest, slavery, theft, and that's true for almost every great and, and not so great civilization in human history that you can think of. Um, 
Where did they get their resources? Usually by just taking it from others. But the interesting thing about that is that that is zero sum. In other words, if I take something from you, suppose I, you know, I want your iPad, let's say, or your iPhone. If I steal your iPhone from you, well, it's plus one iPhone for me, minus one iPhone for you, plus one plus minus one is zero. Um, that's zero sum. In other words, there's no new wealth created. It's just taking it from one place and putting it in another. Well, that what, what I mentioned a second ago about you know the great discovery we, we made was that there is another way for people to get what they want. Um, so if you have, go back to the iPhone example, if you have an iPhone and I would like your iPhone, um, you know, one way I could get it from you is by stealing it from you. That's zero sum. We're not creating anything new. But there's another way I could get it from you too. Um, and the other way is I could make you an offer to buy it. I could make you an offer. And suppose I offer you some money and you agree and I agree. I give you the money and you give me the iPhone. Well, now who benefited? Both of us. And that's the, the shocking, surprising, and at the same time, almost obvious uh, conclusion that both of us had to benefit from it. Otherwise, if you didn't think you benefited from it, you would have said no thanks and gone somewhere else. If I didn't think I benefited, I would have gone, uh, I would have said no thanks and gone somewhere else. So those kinds of transactions, when they're mutually voluntary on both sides, they are mutually beneficial so that you're not benefiting at my expense and I'm not benefiting at your expense. We're benefiting together. That's the key, the, the secret ingredient um, to increasing overall prosperity. The more mutually beneficial transactions, mutually voluntary and mutually beneficial transactions we have, um, the more overall benefit, the more overall prosperity that's created. Um, and that's really what human beings discovered in around 1800 or so. And as that idea spread, that it was not a good idea to just steal from people, but instead to ask their permission to enter into voluntary agreements with people, voluntary exchanges, voluntary transactions. As that idea spread, more and more prosperity was created. And then, you know, like the miracle of compounding interest, it just began to take off. And as that spread throughout the world, um, the overall, in real terms, the overall amount of wealth that the world has created is today more than it has ever been. And it is not close. And if you look at a, you know, if you look at a graph of all of the wealth created on earth through, you know, we've, we've tracked this economic historians have now been able to make pretty credible estimates going back at least about 12,000 years. So long time. What does that graph look like? Well, it's a whole, let me see if I can show you. It's a whole lot of this and then it's this. So in other words, it's a whole long, you know, we have all, you know, from 12,000 years ago to about um, 200 years ago, it's a very long, low line of almost nothing, people living more or less at subsistence. And then it just skyrockets up um, to levels today that have never been seen in the history of humanity. And that's true whether you're look at looking at real wealth, um, even per capita wealth. Um, it is uh, true in both cases. So the creation of wealth um, is itself, and this is the this is the, the thesis of that chapter, it's positive sum. It's not zero sum. I don't uh, benefit at your expense. We benefit together. So uh, to follow up on that, and um, you know, obviously you're a, you're very skilled with your with your arguments, and sometimes I feel like I fumble through my questions or arguments, and so please bear with me. But you were talking about you know the iPad situation, yeah. Um, well, then there's another argument that I hear people make all the time. Well. You're, you're setting that price way too high. You need to bring that price down lower 
So you're an evil person because you set the price way too high. So one of the things we do at the Money Advantage is we actually show people how to use specially designed life insurance contracts to actually store money into, and there's a variety of benefits to that. And one of the things that, and it, and it came out of uh, Nelson Nash, um, who was an Austrian economist, and he was always talking about, you know, um, places to store money. And so, but where I'm going with all this is now it's actually exploded into the internet now. And the big argument about different designs is that, oh, that person's going to get, that agent's going to get paid more because they set the design like this. Uh-huh. Well, what, what I've, what I've always argued is the person that's selling the product does not set the price. The consumer sets the price because it's the, it's the consumer's behavior that determines whether they're going to buy it or not. Nobody's forcing them to buy it. And this is a concept I think that is very difficult. I'm also a bourbon enthusiast and I follow a lot, a lot of bourbon blog boards and Facebook groups. And they're always complaining about the bourbon on the secondary market that this, this particular vendor is selling this bourbon at five times the <laughs> retail price. Yeah. And they're evil people. And I'm, and I'm like, no, they're not evil people. People are obviously buying it at, at that particular price. So the consumer is actually setting the price. So I, I, I'm just curious if, if my philosophy or, or thoughts on this are accurate, you know, as far as your zero-sum uh, wealth game and or just some comments on that, if you don't mind. Yeah, those are some great examples. So maybe I would make uh, uh, two related uh, points uh, in um, in connection with what you were uh, with your example, especially like that bourbon example. I mean, there there are many others like that where there are secondary markets and the prices on secondary markets are Conc- concert tickets. Concert uh, yeah, tickets. Yes. Uh, right. Have you bought a, a Taylor Swift concert ticket recently or attempted <laughs> to? Yeah. Right. Um, um, so I would make yeah two points about that. One is I think we should distinguish between what I would call these are my terms, but what I would call an aspirational price and a real price. So we all have aspirational prices. So use a you know an, a, a, an easy example. Um, I want to sell my house. I would love to get ten million dollars for my house. That's my aspirational price. So um, would anybody actually pay that? No, of course not. Um, but I would really love to get it. So I can say that is a price that I, as a supplier, would like to set. Um, but it's an aspirational price. On the other hand, suppose you're you're a buyer who's potentially interested in my house, and you would really like to buy my house for five thousand dollars. Well, that too is your aspirational price. That's what you would like to uh, to uh, pay for it. Um, so my aspirational price and your aspirational price obviously are pretty far apart. Um, the, and if if I stick to my price and you stick to your price, then we don't ever actually have a transaction. It just doesn't happen. You say no thanks, and I say no thanks. Um, but what often happens in the real world is that, you know, sure, we have these aspirational prices. And you can think about another term, you know, how much money would you like to be paid? Everybody on earth would like to be paid more than they are being paid. So we all have aspirational prices in that sense as well. And you can even assume that employers um, also have their aspirational prices of they'd really like to pay you less. They'd really like for you to do the good job you're doing, but pay you less because they would like to save it too. So those are aspirational prices. Well, what's a real price? A real price emerges when the two parties say yes, when they agree on something. So if you and I negotiate and we come to a point where we both voluntarily, nobody's forcing or coercing the other person, but if we both, both voluntarily say yes to a price, 
that's now a real price. And what that means is, and you know, the, there are plenty of assumptions built into this. One is that we're not coercing each other. Another one is that we're at least um, minimally rational people. We're adults. We're not, you know, incapacitated in any particular way. But for the vast majority of normally functioning adults, if you say yes to a price, uh, whether to buy something or to sell something, what that means is you're saying that um, that price you're uh, agreeing to is uh, uh, gives you more benefit than you think you're giving up. Mm -hmm. So now I don't know how much more, but it's going to be more than zero because otherwise you would have said no. You wouldn't have if if you thought you were benefit that it was actually more cost to you than benefit. You would have said no, and I would do the same on my side. So the real prices that emerge are actual reflections of people's um, uh, subjective sense of their value, given the you know the other resources they have, the goals, aspirations, wishes, desires, preferences. In light of all of those things, they are reflections of what people actually value. And that's going to be, Im importantly, different for everybody. We all have different conceptions. So maybe you, Bruce, are willing to spend a lot more money on a fine bourbon than I am. And you know, does that mean you're right and I'm wrong? No. What that means is that you have preferences that might be different from mine. So I'd rather spend my money, I don't know, on a, 18th, a first edition 18th century book. Okay. Um, does that mean I'm right and you're wrong? No. It just means we're different people and, and that's okay. So there is a difference between aspirational prices and real prices. Um, and then the other point I would make, in, especially in relation to things like uh, bourbon. So I don't know much about that market. And you correct me if I'm wrong. But my guess is that um, the kinds of bourbon that people are talking about that are being sold on secondary markets are usually limited batch. In other words, there aren't, you know, it's not an unlimited uh, quantity or supply of this. Um, so suppose you have a small supply of any good or service, but it could be, you know, we'll, we'll take bourbon um, and you have more people who would like it than you have a supply to give to everybody. How do you figure out who should be the ones who get it? Well, what the, price the prices price. do is they, it, they enable you to figure that out. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect, but it tends to track with the strength of people's desires. If you, Bruce, really love a particular bourbon, um, then you're probably going to be willing to spend more for it than somebody else who maybe kind of likes it, wouldn't mind it, um, but it's not the uh, it's not as high in their priority list as it is for you. So that will be reflected in the price that you're willing to pay as opposed to somebody else, which means that the the supplier of that bourbon, the maker of that bourbon, is going to have figured out, oh, you're the person who should get it. They don't have to know anything else about you. Maybe they've never met you, don't know you from Adam. But the fact that you're willing to offer more means must mean more to you. And if we have a scarce resource and a larger um, a set of desires, then that's the best way or that's a pretty good way to allocate um, to the most highly valued uses. So, um, you know, it may be that people who complain, you know, I'd much maybe you or, you know, we might much rather have a particular good or a particular service at a much lower price. Sure, that's always true, no matter what we're talking about. Um, but in a world of scarcity where things are limited and we don't have unlimited supplies, then we do have to make these kinds of decisions and we have to make, you know, we have to make these allocations. And what's a good, you know, how do we do that? What's the best way to do that? Well, prices that emerge from, um, from what I'm calling these real prices where people actually um, say yes to transactions, that's a pretty good indicator. In, in not perfect? No, it's not perfect. Um, but we, I think we'd be hard pressed to come up with a better way to figure out who really values something more highly than another person. Yeah, it's an example. I always, I always talk about all the different isms, whether it's 
totalitarianism or uh, capitalism or socialism. You know, capitalism is not without fault, but it, it tends to be the best ism. And, <laughs> and, you know, we talked a little bit about Hayek, you know, before the show. And, uh, you know, one of the thoughts, and I think you actually even talk about it in your book, is creating economic equality, Hayek says, requires creating political inequality. And that is, yeah. and that is a that is a uh, a thing that, you know, what are you actually trying to accomplish? And a lot of our politics, even today, are trying to espouse the benefits of equality, but at what cost? Yeah. And so, could you maybe you know comment on on the, those thoughts that you had in the book also about Hayek? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, one of the initial fallacies. I don't know if it, Rachel, if it quite rises to the level of an economic sin, <laughs> um, but one of the fallacies that people often think is that. When we talk about equality, um, there is only one kind of equality, um, and we can uh, we can achieve that. But in fact, equality can be understood in many different ways: equality before the law, equality of opportunity, equality of wealth, equality of income. These are all very different kinds of things. And what's interesting about that is that if you champion any one of them, you pick one that is the one that you like, they will often come at the expense of the other one. So you can't mm -hmm. have all of them at the same time. Um, and I think that's uh, the Hayekian point, Bruce, that you were you know, suggesting is that um, suppose we want to have equality of, you know, pick your favorite, but suppose we want to have equality of wealth, let's say. Everybody has the same amount of wealth. Um, what's that going to mean? Well, that will mean that we're going to have to have political institutions that are going to restrain some people and encourage other people, maybe have some dis uh, redistribution from one group to another group. Um, which means that politically, um, we're treating different groups of people differently. So we've now given up on equality before the law. Um, and that's one of the implications. So if you think that equality of wealth is more important than equality of the law, okay, but then you're going to have to make that case and you have to realize that that's what you're giving up. You know, we live in, an, in, in a limited world of scarcity. You can't have everything you want. So we're going to have to look at the trade-offs involved. Um, and, you know, so that's that's one important sort of philosophical point about equality. Um, but I would also suggest that, you know, there are plenty of cases of inequality that are perfectly innocent. Um, you know, we, we have to be aware of, you know, one of the seven deadly moral sins, the seven deadly sins is envy. And I think we have to be, you know, conscious of the fact that we are often extremely envious of other people. You know, that's a seven deadly sin for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, we are often extremely envious of others. And one quick example of that. My best friend from high school um, uh, is a medical doctor. So he went on to become a board certified medical doctor. Um, and for, you know, I'm a professor. Um, and uh, for most of our respective careers, he's made at least 10 times as much as I have made. And, you know, he likes to rib me with that. So, he, you know, if we're just looking at wealth, you know, certainly uh, income, but also wealth, you know, he's, there's a great deal of inequality between him and me. Um, even though we had similar educational careers, but, you know, we just took different professional paths that led to, diff um, uh, to different levels of wealth. So there's a great deal of inequality, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that because, you know, I potentially could have become a medical doctor, but I love what I do. And so choosing what I did, um, I, you know, I that's a trade-off I was willing to make. Yes, I gave up more money, but what I get for it is I get to talk with people like you about great ideas and books. Uh, now, that wouldn't have been the right trade-off for him. He'd rather do what he does, and that's okay. So the fact that people take different paths, that's actually can be a reflection of the fact that people are just different. 
-hmm. And that's all right. People are naturally different. They have naturally, they naturally have different interests and abilities and desires. And um, if you have a free society, those differences among them are going to reflect different paths that they'll take in life. So the fact that they end up being not exactly the same on different margins doesn't by itself mean that anything uh, is wrong with that. In fact, it could even be a cause for celebration, the spectacular diversity of humanity. So much packed into that. I was going to bring up a point earlier, and I realized how close to the end of our time we are. So, uh, oh my I'll make gosh, this... it's moving! It's going so quickly. I know. When we're <laughs> in a good conversation, I always wish it could last much longer. So, um, there was something that you were mentioning earlier, and the the whole idea of people feeling like wealth is zero sum. I think sometimes there's this sociological element that is really envy based. That is, well, if I um, see somebody that's made more than me, and I, I. I, I envy that first, then I want to be them. So I'm elevating them in status above myself. Well, I don't want to be in that position because now I'm demeaning myself and making myself feel less than. So I have to somehow write that scale and maybe say, well, maybe they achieve that through unethical means. And so therefore now I'm back in my, you know, superior moral position. I think we go through these um, mental gymnastics a little bit too figure out the world. But I really almost wonder, and I don't know how this would play onto the exponential curve, but I wonder if so much of our humanity does is almost um, hardwired to go towards how we consume and use resources rather than the creation of resources. I think it's a, yeah. a lower level intellectual um, task to figure out how am I going to spend this money to subsist? How am I going to spend this money to um, enjoy my life? But then making the money, well, that seems like that's a whole nother, <laughs> uh, that's a, a whole different yeah. discipline that requires yeah. a lot more thought. And when you realize that wealth is created, it's not just used, then that allows us to be in that space of figuring out mutually beneficial transactions. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. And I think um, I, on behalf of my uh, fellow professors, that uh, we should take uh, the blame in part for that, because we spend a lot of time talking about the proper and maybe the morally proper distribution of resources. Um, and we don't spend very much time thinking or talking about how to produce resources. Mm. Um, and that's a real mistake um, because you know wealth is not, you know, it doesn't grow on trees. It doesn't magically appear. Every particle of wealth that we have um, has been created by human beings. It takes human action and human labor, human ingenuity to create, and it doesn't happen in any other way. Um, and an interesting way to, uh, to, to put that is there was an economist who uh, died a couple of de uh, decades ago, Julian Simon. Maybe you've heard of him, but uh, Julian Simon used to say, um, there's no such thing as a natural resource um, because in fact, there are no resources other than those created by human beings. Um, and his and the way he the example used to illustrate that was he said, you know, go back in your in your mind, you know, historically in your mind to say um, 5000 years ago or even 2000 years ago. Um, there was this black tar like substance that was under the sands mm -hmm. of many Middle Eastern areas. Um, was that a resource? No, not because time, it was just yeah. a nuisance. They didn't know what to do with it. Um, but then somebody figured out something to do with it, um, and it didn't become a resource until we human beings, we collectively human beings, figured out what to do with it. Um, and that goes along, you know, even that little example, I think, goes some way to helping people understand that um, we can't talk about what, how we should distribute resources or redistribute resources um, 
unless there's already some resources created. So we have to have something first before mm-hmm. it can be distributed. Um, you can't you know, div- divide the cake up among your children until you have a cake first, which means somebody had to have made that cake, which means yes. somebody had to have gotten the ingredients for that cake, et cetera. So once you start backing that up, you realize that, wow, wh- whatever we think about, you know, if we take a snapshot look at society, you know, and anytime we did that, we might say, any of us might say, well, I don't like the way resources are distributed um, in my society. More should be over here and less there, et cetera. You know, we might move things around if we could. Um, but we also have to realize that um, that the fact that we might like to have the opportunity to have resources tomorrow also um, and next week and next month means we also have to think about what are the institutions that incentivize production? Um, what are the institutions that incentivize people to innovate, to create? to work, to labor, and maybe even to take joy in the fact that they're creating and laboring. Um, And we don't want to have institutions or policies, regulations, programs that punish people for those things. Because if we're punishing people or imposing costs on those people, then we can endanger, you know, then then you really are slaying the the goose that's laying the golden egg. You don't want to do that. Um, So that I think really is an important thing for us to think about. And And you're right. We don't spend enough time thinking about that as well. And yet, I think entrepreneurship is a dream. It is a thing that is in the heart of so many people. And yet, I think often we relegate it to, oh, that's just a few. A few people will be successful in business. But if you look at what made America, what brought most people wealth, it was being in business of some kind. So I know we don't have a lot of time left, but can you just take that thought and, and jump into a little bit about what you say about business can be moral and honorable? Yeah. So um, I'll tell you one thing that does worry me about the future. I mean, there maybe are many things worth worrying about for the future. But as a professor who deals with uh, college age students, um, one thing that I think I have noticed is that um, in recent years, there's been a decrease in the kind of entrepreneurial spirit that students have. Mm. Um, what they, they, they want to get a job with an already existing company. Um, they're less interested in striking out on their own and finding some problem that they can solve on their own. Or they can come up with some new way to think about uh, how to address you know, humanity's various different kinds of problems and difficulties. And that does worry me because um, you know, if, if, if we think, well, we only need one or two entrepreneurs, we only need one Steve Jobs and we only need one Elon Musk or whoever. Um, well, you, that's not enough. I mean, everybody should think about themselves as being something like an entrepreneur. And so uh, to go to your question um, about honorable business, um, you know, uh, I mean, the first thing to say about what I consider to be honorable business is never to engage in the kind of extraction we talked about a little while ago where, where I benefit myself at your expense. That has to be um, not be necessarily because there's a law against it or because somebody's watching or I might get punished, but just through sheer force of my character, I'm not the sort of person who would ever benefit myself at somebody else's unwilling expense. So that's, you know, that's sort of the baseline. But I think there's also a positive obligation, and the positive obligation is to say, "Look, I, um, you know, even if you're not, so I, you know, I'm a Catholic. I teach at a Catholic university, and we talk about, we say things like, you know, we're all created in the image and likeness of God, and God was a creator, and so part of what we are is also as creators. So it's part of our nature. Yes. Um, but even if you don't believe that, um, you can still recognize that everybody has different gifts, as it were. Everybody has a different signature of talents, abilities." They're not all the same. They're unique. It's part of what makes us interestingly unique as human beings. But what that means is that there is some unique kind of value that 
only you can contribute to the world, that literally there is no other human being on earth in the history of humanity, that, um, that uh, some kind of value that could be um, contributed by you that nobody else could do. Um, and so I think the positive aspect of honorable business is figure out what that is. Be entrepreneurial and innovative in your own life. How can I use the abilities I have, you know, under the constraints that I face? You know, I, you know, I have obligations and I'm in a certain kind of society at a certain time, et cetera. Yeah, sure. There are all of those constraints. And maybe we all, uh, you know, would like to have been dealt a better card, you know, by the, by the gods or by God or something, better hand. Um, but you have a hand. You should play it. And there is some kind of value that you can contribute to the world that nobody else can. Um, and I think a kind of calling for an honorable business person is to say, I want to figure out how I can use my unique package of abilities to create value for other people, not just for myself. I mean, I can improve my own situation as well. That's fine. But only if at the same time I'm benefiting somebody else. Um, and if you feel that calling and are willing to incorporate that into your professional life and into all aspects of your life, then that, I think, really is a definition of honorable business. Yes, this reminds me back of so many conversations. I'll name a few. Rabbi Lapin um, shares that oh, whole yes. idea as well, that that you have to be the business and economic transactions are mutually beneficial and you have to serve another person in order to get that benefit. So just super no, congruent. Exactly right. Bob Berg talks about the same thing with the go-giver that you have to give in order to receive. It's like this breathing dichotomy that happens. Yeah. Um, he he wrote some fabulous books. And then I'm even thinking of John and Missy Butcher, um, who've talked about the the beginning of money and what that even means to have money and the creation of money is so valuable. So right. we are almost at our time, but would you share with us um, how people can find you? And then just a little bit about some of the work that you're doing with um, speaking as well. Uh, sure. So thank you very much. Um, yeah. So there are multiple ways you can find me. Um, I have, if you go to the University of Notre Dame's website, there's a faculty profile of me there and you can find me at, uh, at, the, at the university's website. I also have my own website, which uh, I should update more frequently than I do. I should be better about that than I am. But I have my own website, which is just my name, jamesoddison.com. Um, and uh, most of my so my books that I've written are all available on places like Amazon or um, Barnes and Noble. Um, but one of the things uh, to your other question about, uh, you know, sort of speaking, um, one of the things. So I get invited to speak in many different kinds of um, scenarios to college students, sometimes to faculty, sometimes to groups of business people, uh, sometimes religious groups. So, um, you know, if there's a, a Catholic entrepreneurs or Jewish entrepreneurs or Jewish business people, they might ask me to come and speak. Um, but one of the things that I have discovered in giving uh, talks to various kinds of audiences that dismays me a bit is how many people who are either interested to become business people, so maybe students who are studying business and want to be business people, or people who are in business now and uh, in some cases uh, very successful business people, how many of them are a little embarrassed by the fact that they're in business or studying mm. business or successful in business? It's as if they're embarrassed by it, like they've done something wrong that they need to maybe atone for. Mm. Um, and one of the things, if, if you just give me 30 seconds about this, one of the things I've noticed Please, is ahead. that this is, this is reflected in this common phrase people hear that businesses or business people need to give back to society. So a lot of business yes. people think <laughs> I need to give back. And my thought about that is that, well, I mean, did you steal it? You know, if, if you stole something, yeah, then you need to give it back. Or if you... You know, if you uh, despoiled somebody else's property, okay, then you need to indemnify them. You need to make them whole. 
But if you're successful in business by engaging in mutually voluntary, mutually beneficial transactions and benefiting yourself only at the same time by benefiting other people, I don't think that's something you need to atone for. In fact, I think that's something you should be proud of. You figured out a way to use your unique gifts to benefit other people. That's something we should be proud of. And I think we should be celebrating. Amen. <laughs> that is absolutely true. It's so interesting how often that comes up and that we hear that as well. And that there somehow feels this need to give um, or to do charity in a way to reconcile some kind of a yep. wrong that's been to made atone in for business. Your sin. Yes. <laughs> Which being in business is not a sin. And if you recognize the core value of providing value to others, and if you recognize that you have had to deliver tremendous value to start in business, to continue the next day in business, and to be in business for the next year and the next five years, it all requires tremendous giving and tremendous service and figuring out what people need yes. enough and what they're, what problems they're aware of that they would like your help with. It requires you to become a bigger, a bitter. No, my goodness, I'm messing up all the words. Bigger and better. I made all the wrong words with that. <laughs> Bigger and better person in order to be able to supply the value that they need. I think all around businesses, transformationally amazing. Yeah, and it can even accomplish that uh, against our own wishes. So you might be the most selfish person in the world in your heart of hearts, but you will not succeed in business unless you spend all day, every day thinking about other people and how to solve other people's problems and make other people's lives better off. Yes, this is profound. There are so many more things that I'd love to talk about, uh, but we might have to save that conversation for another day. We'll have to have you back at some point if you would uh, if you'd oblige us. And uh, this has been a profound and wonderful conversation. So in closing, please know that you can go find Jim. So we've called him Dr. Jim Audison today. I'm going to spell his website just so that you have that. That's James, J-A-M-E-S. Audison, O-T-T-E-S-O-N.com. So go ahead and find him, find his work. Um, and if he could be of service to you and your group, your tribe, your audience in any way, please do reach out to him. This work needs to be heard by Thank you so many much. more people. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. I'd love to come back. So please feel free to invite me. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. Is there anything that you wanted to share before I close? I would just like to say that, uh, you know, when, when people are looking to create wealth, um, I think it's just not a passing phase. You actually have to do the work. You have to do the research. You have to, you have to commit to this. And, you know, I find, I find this is actually sliding in society, just like you're seeing sliding your students out of entrepreneurship. It's like, even with people that are saying like with an Amazon, um, uh, a business, you know, now people are out there saying, you don't have to do anything. Just give me your money and I will create this business for you. And you can just sit back on the beach and collect all the money. And that is a prevailing, passive income. right. Passive income. Yeah. And that's the prevailing thought. And we say, you know, we have requirements to actually work with us that you have to provide us information that makes you work you have to read you have to do this but a lot of people in our society now are actually just expecting wealth to be handed to them yeah. and it really requires that the reason it's valuable is because it requires work to get to that particular situation and i'll just end with this is if it if it was easy everybody would do it and then it wouldn't be valuable that's, <laughs> that's the bottom right. line yeah that's right 
we'd have all the all the wealth in the world and nobody would have to do anything. Maybe that happens in heaven, but Perhaps. that's not that's not on earth. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. true. We work and we labor. And thankfully we have the ability to work and we've been given a gift of work and we can value work because yeah. it is a good thing. Uh so many great ideas we can unpack next time. Um so in closing I do want to also invite you, if you've heard anything about our work that we've had little snippets throughout today, specifically as Bruce was sharing, if you'd like to talk with our team about your financial life or about infinite banking, you can reach out to us and book a conversation at themoneyadvantage.com and we'll have the links. We share that all the time, but I just want to make sure that you had that for this show. And in closing, thank you for listening today. Thank you for being part of our audience. And thank you, Dr. Audison, for joining us for this great conversation. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. In closing, remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking Put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.